Hello and welcome to this episode, which is the first part that we're going to do on Castle Acre Priory, which is the historical site study for this year's Norman England paper. Because it's on a priory, it seems like a good idea to just talk a little bit first about monasticism. So that's this episode, where we're going to talk about what monasticism is, how monasteries worked, what the life of a monk was like, and then in the second episode we'll start talking about what Castle Acre Priory can tell us itself about Norman England. So, what is a monastery? At a most basic level, a monastery is a place where monks live. It's a religious house. It's separate from the world. The priest lives within the world. The priest tends to the flock outside, whereas the monk separates himself from life from the world to this self-contained place where he dedicates himself to the worship of God. And that's basically it. If you keep that in mind, everything else about monasteries will make perfect sense. It's all about dedicating your life to the worship of God. In terms of organisation... From a technical level, if you look at the 11th century, you'll find that monasteries will generally fall into one of three categories. They're either an abbey, which is what we think of as a monastery, a religious house with monks led by an abbot. There is a priory, which is a kind of satellite monastery, which is reliant on a larger abbey somewhere to make decisions and policy, and they just follow. And then there's a nunnery where you will find nuns who, to all intents and purposes, are the, exactly the same as monks. They're just women. The first monasteries really are around during the Roman period, but they don't really take off until somewhere around 530 AD when St. Benedict writes down the rules, or the rule of St. Benedict, if you like, which lays out exactly how this life should be lived. And this, this set of strictures becomes the main dominant form of monasticism throughout Christian Europe, right the way through up until the 11th century, where you start getting some other orders like the Franciscans and the Cistercians and people like that. But they are all variations on the original template set by St. Benedict. So what are St. Benedict's rules? Well, the day is split into eight prayer services, which happen at set times of the day throughout the day and the night. Monks wear very simple clothes called a habit made out of rough spun wool. They're not luxurious, they're simply for usage. Monks are supposed to have taken three main vows. Poverty, which is they don't own anything themselves. Everything they need is provided by the, the monastery. Chastity, no marriage, no sexual contact of any sort whatsoever because they're dedicating their life to God. And obedience. They have to obey their abbot or their abbess. They have to obey all the rules of the monastery. And it's that obedience to the will of God as expressed by the abbot that drives the structure of the rest of the day. So monks eat simple meals. 
vegetarian food usually, only two meals a day. They care for sick, uh, charity for travellers. They look after anybody who's passing by. They're expected to be silent if they're not praying. And so they will develop a, a system of sign language, allowing them to ask for various things around the monastery. And in a period where people have a lot of facial hair, the Normans famously have their moustaches and the Anglo-Saxons have their beards, monks are expected to be clean-shaven and they also are supposed to have a, a, a bald spot shaved into the top of their head, a tonsure. And this is to show that they have no place for earthly vanity. They are thinking of higher things. And likewise, a... a a nun is forced to wear a wimple, something which covers her entire head except for a face. Again, not caring about hair or appearance or worldly things. The design of a monastery is usually self-contained and facing inwards, built around a central cloister, an area where the monks could have outside air. But again, it's not facing out. It's not seeing the outside world. Within the monastery there would be areas for planting crops and growing things and herbs and everything that's needed is supposed to be provided within the monastery again self-contained split off from the outside world now it's all very well saying this of course that you're split off from the outside world but building a monastery is a very expensive business so where does the money come from generally it will be founded by someone who is deeply religious and incredibly wealthy and powerful. Uh, William, Duke of Normandy, is a perfectly good example. He's responsible for building a number of abbeys during his tenure as Duke. But why? Well, the first reason is that you're doing it as an act of glory to God. The actual construction of the monastery is an act of worship. Secondly, if you are a person of power and strength in the 11th century, the chances are that you've done some pretty nasty things in order to get there. You have a great deal of blood on your hands. And that blood on your hands, those sins, are weighing you down. And there is a serious question over whether they are going to get you into heaven or not, or whether you're going to spend an eternity in purgatory working your way through. Well, how can you avoid this? You can avoid this by having people pray for your soul. The more people there are praying for your soul, the quicker you will get through purgatory. The more pure those people are who are praying for your soul, the more value their prayers have and the quicker you get through purgatory. So if you pay for the establishment of a monastery, if you're the benefactor who pays for it, they will pray for your soul. And because they are dedicating their entire lives to God, their prayers are particularly holy. And therefore, you will get into heaven that much quicker. The church is also valuable in terms of social methods of control. An awful lot of the nobility will have spare children, spare sons, spare daughters. You can only marry off so many daughters. You can only afford so many dowries. And you can only find so many wars for your second and third son to go and fight in and what have you. Therefore, at a certain point, you need to find something else to do with them. Monasteries and nunneries are an excellent way of getting rid of excess noble children. 
And again, if you're a benefactor, then they will take them in. Or if your lord is a benefactor, then they will take them in. So monasticism spreads across Western Europe. It's doing very, very well for itself. But it does need some reform in England when William arrives. And this is for a number of reasons. Mainly, the amount of money in the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of England is reducing. And if there's less money around, less uh, funding for monasteries, then monasteries can't survive. Secondly, they are suffering an increasing number of Viking raids throughout the couple of centuries up to the Norman Conquest. And you can see why. A monastery is a very ripe target, full of people who won't or can't fight to defend themselves, a great deal of treasure, reliquaries, um, manuscripts, and indeed, the monks themselves are valuable to be taken away and used as slaves. And because monasticism is weak, and because the monasteries are weak, the monasteries are very, very reliant on local lords. And as a result, there's a great deal of secular, that is, uh, temporal power, people who have power in the world, not people who have power religiously, there's a great deal of secular interference in the running of monasteries. It, for example, a, a Benedictine monastery is required to be self-sufficient. They have to grow their own crops on the land. That is part of the rule of St. Benedict. But the only way you can get that land is if it's given to you or lent to you by one of the local earls. And if they then are producing excess wealth, the local lord will take that back, thus leaving the bishop, the abbot, the local important churchman reliant on the lord for everything. So the first thing that reformers want to do is they want to reduce the amount of influence that temporal secular lords have over the monasteries. And William is quite happy to do this because William is a deeply religious man and William has allowed the various monastic orders in Normandy to plough their own furrow. He doesn't tell them what to do. He's quite happy as long as they just keep praying for him. Secondly, a number of the Benedictine monasteries in England have strayed quite far away from the original rule of St. Benedict. They no longer just eat vegetarian meals. They have feasts. In some cases, these vows of obedience and poverty are not being adhered to. In some extreme cases, the vow of chastity is being ignored. And there are some cases of abbots having mistresses living in the monastery. In some cases, there are rich clothing being worn instead of the basic black habits. And you have to remember that the main religious advisor for William is Lanfranc. And Lanfranc comes from a religious monastic background. He was in a monastery for most of his time. He was an abbot when he was a teacher. So you can see that when he arrives and he looks at the state of English monasticism, he can see that it immediately needs to be dealt with and changed. That's the basic groundwork for understanding what monasticism is and what sort of state it's in in England when the Normans arrive. 
In the next episode, we'll have a look at Castleacre Priory as an example of a Norman monastery and how it can be used to illustrate changes to monasticism and the relationship between monasticism and Norman England. Because this is a very deep relationship which really highlights the changes that the Normans bring to all levels of society. So thank you for listening and good luck on your exams. Thank you.